Hello, players who still don't understand action economy and at this point are too afraid to ask. And DMs, and also players who consider themselves rule lawyers and will own that shit all day long. No fucking extra actions, no bonus action as a reaction, no is, free fucking object. It is a no fuck you. Yeah, which goes very well with action economy. I'm Robert. I'm Maddie. Welcome back to Table Talk. What are we talking about today, Madison? We're talking about homebrew. Homebrew Ooh. shit. Um, I almost like was going to make a dumb pun about tea, but I think I'm just tired. Um... That's so fair. It's a fucking exhausting week. It's been an exhausting day. Um, Homebrew, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the concept, uh, we've talked a little bit about it in previous episodes. Shout out our podcast. You should go listen to those. It's really cool. Um, The hosts kind of suck, though. Specifically, Maps, Legends, and Lore, uh, we talk a bit about how to create like a universe from nothing, and homebrew is kind of one of the things that we've talked about um, in and throughout our our episodes, but Mm -hmm. today we wanted to to sort of zero in on the concept of creating your own shit from nothing, uh, specifically in in D&D. I mean, you can do it in any other system. You can do Mm -hmm. it on guns and bikes, whatever, whatever, but D&D. So to not be redundant and cover how to make your own universe, because that was essentially an entire episode (laughs) in and of itself. Yeah. um, Some of the big things that you'll run into as a DM when homebrewing are um, stat blocks, are going to be um, combat encounters that almost all of the time will be homebrew homebrew to an extent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Magical items, specifically ones that you want tailored to your players. Uh, classes that may or may not fit a character as well as you'd want it to. Races that races you don't feel like you can't that don't find feel the that way that you want to play. Oftentimes, the, the the most that I encounter it is whenever somebody wants to take a particular spell or wants to rebrand a spell or wants to change something about their weapon or their equipment because it would just make more sense, um, which I'm totally fine with. I mean... Homebrew in general is a term is super broad, and it's basically just there to capture anything that doesn't come directly out of a source book. But mm-hmm. even then, I would consider changing things in a source book to fit your campaign. I would also consider that homebrew. Which is something that I, I don't think, I think it would be very rare for someone to go through an entire campaign and not, not run into a form of homebrew. Because there's always going to be points, and we've talked before about like bending and changing rules. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's like for like thematic reasons or just things yep. that like feel right in the moment, um, making shit up as you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's what's really popular um, that a lot of DMs will do, not even just first time DMs, but I mean people that have been doing it for a while, is taking an existing one shot because it has a lot of pre existing information, encounters, classes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, taking that source book or one shot and then kind of doing their own story, their own take with it. Mm-hmm. I mean that I think that's the most common version of it, truly. Yeah. Um, I mean, source books on like Theros and Forgotten Realms, Capes and Crooks, which is entirely homebrewed by whatever fucking company makes it. I have to go back and look. Um, but like all of that is still kind of considered homebrewed to an extent. And then you essentially just take all that information that they've handily provided you uh, and then do everything you want with it yourself. Yeah. Um, but like we talked about doing um, a Castlevania campaign at some point mm-hmm. uh, based off the the popular game. And then now popular animated TV show on Netflix. And literally my initial thought was I'm just going to buy Curse of Strahd <laughs> yeah. from Wizards. And then I'm going to rip and pull what I want from Curse of Strahd and rebrand it Castlevania. Yeah. Because if there's a whole fucking source book with fancy doodads and writings and encounters and items, fuck I look like going through and making up a whole universe, yeah. whole new classes, whole new everything. When there's already a book that's going to have 75, 85% of that there for me. And with that, I mean, there's the conversation of like pros and cons of homebrew versus like 
playing out of like a source book or something if you're going to like entirely homebrew something. And there definitely are pros and cons to that. Um, I've been playing at a table um, with a first time DM um, and she's doing a wonderful job. Uh, but she was like, yeah, I wanted to use a source book for my first one just because it's going to be like a little bit easier because you already have stuff to pull from. You already have stat blocks. You already have combat encounters. You already have maps. Everything that you need is there for you. However, one of the things that can be kind of like a con with like going completely from the source book and not really doing a lot of homebrew stuff with it is it can feel a little bit stifling because you're like bound to these rules and to this world. Like you can't make shit up on the fly as often mm-hmm. uh, versus with homebrew. You can make whatever the fuck up you want, yeah. but you don't always have like and something the, concrete to go on. The thing that stresses me out about doing things that aren't homebrew or about doing a source book is um, there's so much information to learn and yeah. to try and commit to memory and to, to keep track of as you go through a source book or a one shot. And it's just like a lot yeah. There are monologues that you can, you don't have to, but like they highly suggest you read off. There are 60 different checks that are going to, like, it's going to say your players are going to enter the dungeon at this point. They can make any number of checks, and then it'll give you consequences for making those checks, failing them, not making them. Yeah. And then it'll give you like a fucking Goosebumps book. It'll then, like, choose your own adventure. It'll then have several different pages of what happens based on which of those outcomes does or does not happen. Um, and if you've picked up anything from your knowledge of D&D or from listening to any of our episodes, players don't stick to the script. No. Um, so as you can imagine, those one-shots and those source books get fucking giant really quick because they're trying to account for every generic possible scenario yeah. or, or option or whatever the fuck that your players are going to choose. And then another con for that is what do you do when your players try to do something that is so completely not an option in the book, mm. but isn't illogical or like weird enough for you to be like it just doesn't work or it doesn't happen yeah yeah um that's when you gotta kind of like think on your feet and be like okay where i mean yeah that makes sense there's no reason not to do it like no it doesn't say it in the book and no it's not a a thing that you could do based on your character stats or whatever pre-generated character you're playing but like i'm not gonna you know yeah i'm not gonna tell you no yeah like if it makes sense it makes sense source book is not the dm you are the source book is just a guide yes um but it can be a homebrew can look i think it's one of those things where like it can either look really really intimidating or Mm -hmm. it could be a lot more inviting and easy than a source book and i think it's one of those things that like truly it just depends on who you are as a person i mean so far i have advocated pretty heavily as as sort of pro homebrew um but i I do want to try and be a little more unbiased and talk about some of the the cons that come with it um for one when you homebrew something, depending on what it is you're homebrewing, it might not always have a one-to-one translation in 5e in the traditional system that we've all played in for several years now. Uh, And so you then have to figure out how your homebrew mechanic, homebrew spell, homebrew class, homebrew whatever, interacts with all of the rest of the normal regular rules. And sometimes it's Mm. not that easy to translate. That's why, like, uh, when doing a superhero campaign, I was like, am I going to have to homebrew races, classes, yeah. Um, all if that. You're playing it in just regular like five E. Cool. Everyone is a human. Mm-hmm. Every, like you can change your background and your class, but that's it. Exactly. And that's when you have to start turning to homebrew stuff to be like, okay, do they have this really like? Do they have this class that I would like? Do they have this tweak? And finding pre-generated homebrew stuff is truly the easiest go-to way to do it. There are so many resources but out the there. The con to it truly is finding quality homebrew that you then can continue to use. Because um, some of it's good, some of it's not. Some of it's behind a paywall. Some of it's free 
I mean, it's like any other PDF of D&D out there on the internet. Like, you just got to take time and sift through it. Yeah. Um, the other thing that sucks about homebrew, I have a couple of different things pulled up, is combat. Uh, combat encounters in particular, when you do homebrew, when you're not out of any kind of a source book, like, combat encounters become a lot more labor-intensive because it's usually you having to figure out, okay, what kind of creatures are in this world? Are there stat blocks for creatures that are similar to them? Have I made stat blocks? I probably fucking haven't, so it looks like we're going to go find a kobold, and then we're just going to rename it something different. Yeah. Um, and then, depending on how different of a universe you're playing in or a different setting, then it's like rebranding what they're doing. And it, it can be fun, but it could also be a, a lot of work. Yeah. Um, two websites that I cannot recommend enough are, one is called Improve Initiative. I've talked about that previously on our combat episode. Mm-hmm. It allows you to go in and physically make stat blocks. Uh, you can build encounters and then sort of hit load encounter and it'll pull up everything you want on that encounter down to initiative, health, whatever, whatever. Um, and that's the way that I find easiest to do it. You can get it on your phone. You can pull it up on desktop. doesn't really matter. The other one is going to be Kobold plus Fight Club, which I think is funny. Um, it is literally Kobold and then like the plus symbol and then Fight Club. Interesting name. So they have just about every creature imaginable from... The majority of the source books, both uh, put out by wizards and not put out by wizards, and you can essentially calculate how difficult a combat encounter is going to be for your players, uh, which if you're doing homebrew combat encounters that aren't naturally designed to be for four or five level players, it's really helpful to know whether or not you're going to fuck around and kill your players. Yeah. Um, because starting out, especially if it's your first couple of times, it's going to take you a little while to get a handle on just what your players um, can tackle and what they cannot. And when you switch campaigns, different classes, different players, that you're just going to have to relearn for every new group of players you go through. Um, yeah. And that can be kind of difficult. But with Cobalt Flight Club, you can literally put in how many players at what level you want, XP-based, non-XP-based. You can add groups. You can have it generate generic encounters. You can find specific monsters and then load those in there. You can tell it how difficult of an encounter you want. Uh, legendary status, particular environments, creature types, category sizes, alignments. Like, you can get really, really customized uh, with it. So, cannot recommend that enough. But combat, in my opinion, is one of the most difficult things to, to go through if you're doing homebrew. Yeah. I think that kind of talking about balancing an encounter, I think, also goes to another point of homebrew. Um, when, like, if you're making something from scratch, like, if you were, like, completely homebrewing an item yourself and you're not just, like, pulling a homebrew item that you found on the internet. Mm. Um, Which there are a lot of. Yes. I, personally, when you were talking about those websites, I use Pinterest. All That's where I find Instagram, so many things that I like. I have so many Pinterest boards that are just either, like, cool magical items or, like, cool different races or classes and stuff like that. And, like, I use Reddit a lot or Tumblr are all great resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but talking about balancing when you're making an item from scratch of like still keeping it within the realm of the game and like things that make sense and like there has to be balances like Mm -hmm. and i wrote down like on my notes for this like mary sue's which i don't like the term mary sue personally um but basically creating a character that is or a item or a whatever that is so powerful and it's so good and there's Mm -hmm. no downsides whatsoever i'm just the best yeah, for, for those of fun. you that are familiar with comics or anime, two prime examples of uh, characters that are like that. Superman is one of them. Batman yeah. is one of them. Wonder Woman, yeah, kind of, depending on if it's a man or a woman writing the story. <laughs> um, Gojo, for those of you that watch anime from Jujutsu Kaisen, I mean, you'll you recognize them. They're the characters or the items or like the figures in a universe that just like there's zero downsides. 
They're broken as all fuck. It's impossible yeah. to write around them. It would be like Superman if there was no such thing as kryptonite. Kryptonite yeah, is be. a balance for Superman. It's like if just super, like, without that. Or if you handed, like, an orc a pistol. Yeah. It's like, cool. There's nothing he can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as he can get the ammo for it, like, who's who's going against him? Yeah, it's, it's like someone who's ultra-powerful, and then they're also, like, integral to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but just kind of balancing and, like, keeping in mind of, like, okay, you're a level three character. Yeah. You're not going to have an item mm-hmm. that is going to allow you to just cast one level nine spell. Yeah. Uh, once per long rest. Yep. That's just not, that's not a balance that like yeah. you can keep. And there's no like downsides to that. There's no levels of exhaustion. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about homebrew from a player's perspective. Like there have definitely been times where like I wanted a particular weapon to get buffed or I wanted to change it a little bit or I wanted to like homebrew something myself because I felt like it fit the character better than something else. I mean, if you're, I mean, you experience a lot on both sides of the fence a hundred percent, but I think as a player, uh, it's oftentimes asking for something that you already have or have been handed to be modified. Yeah. It's, I want this weapon to do this kind of damage instead. I'd like to increase the range. I'd like to up the damage. I'd like to have this fucking cloak that I've been carrying on me since 06 to actually be worth a damn if I'm not going to get new armor. Like, yeah. a lot of the times it's going to ask to rework an existing mechanic in, in the universe and then change it. Um, what I will say about that as a DM, I'm super fucking inclined to say yes. Like, I don't think I've ever told anybody no, unless it was just, like, a really broken or ridiculously broken request. Um, Oftentimes, my response as a DM is going to be, give it a couple sessions and we'll work it in naturally. Instead of me just being like, snap my fingers, now it's more powerful, now you have an extra spell slot, now this has changed. Like, just give your DMs time to work that into the universe, too, because it is... It just it takes you out of it, I think, from a writing perspective and as a player perspective to have like one thing change drastically and be completely different from session to session with yeah. there being zero in universe explanation for it. Yeah. You know? And that's one of those things where like you can look at like XP versus milestone and like I mm-hmm. we are a very milestone heavy table. Yep. Um when it comes to like leveling up or like any benefits or something like that. Like in our current campaign, uh, my character is level three. I have not taken my like level three like bonus I get for my class mm-hmm. um because it was it, it was it was a debate. It was a I say debate. It was a scream fight between Robert and I uh, because I didn't want what the effect was, but I'm getting it anyway, uh, which is a familiar. And I was like, I don't want to show up to this with a cat, so can I just meet the cat in the game? Mm-hmm. And, like, that's, I mean, that's not technically homebrew, but that's kind of, like, the same thing of, like, yeah. it's going to be something that, like, will be introduced. And I think that those moments make it more impactful, and I think it makes it more fun from a player's perspective, because there's not a lot that, as a player, you get to interact, you get to directly interact when it comes to homebrew, like a DM does, mm-hmm. because you're like you're not picking the magical items that you're getting most of the time, unless you're like in a shop or you find something really cool and you send it to your DM and you're like, hey, can we put this in the game? Mm-hmm. Um, is really the only way that you're going to be interacting with it. Yeah, uh, magical items have been touched on a couple times. Those are another really big point of contention for me when talking about pros and cons. It tends to fall more on the side of cons. <laughs> Because magical items, sky's the limit. Um, like, truly, magical items are a, like the MacGuffin of the D&D universe. They yeah. can be anything, like Mary Sue, they can be anything all of the time, whenever. Point blank, period. Yeah. You could have a magical item that gives somebody, uh, like, a wish spell and then kills them immediately after. Fun concept, <laughs> but, like, they got it. Yeah. You could give somebody a sword that, like, gives them plus, like, one, like, you roll an additional D4 worth of cold damage. That's cool, I guess. 
Um, like, or you could give somebody armor that basically makes them like unkillable. Like, truly, sky is the absolute limit. Like, I'm just looking it, up random like homebrew magical when items. When it comes, to, oh, I have so many saved to my Instagram because that's where to, I get like, a lot of mine. Pull up and show as an example. Like, uh, I homebrewed one for Madison in our World Serpent campaign where the whole items concept was storing failed wild magic surge rolls. Yeah, that one was fun. Let me see if I can pull up the description um, of that really fast. I had another one that I found online and then kind of changed for uh, one of my tankier players. It was basically like a, a wall of scales that they could summon and would give them a higher AC, reduced movement speed, higher HP. Um, and that was just like an item that they had to become attuned to and it was pretty much that. Um, I mean, hell, every magical item I gave in my last campaign was entirely homebrewed. I think there were maybe a couple that I took inspiration from something else. Um, but like, truly, I have done so many homebrew magical items, and it is exhausting because the way that I like to hand magical items out is to be very specific to the character. Yeah. I like items that grow with the character. I like items that are meant to stick with them for extended periods of time and help them on their arc, or they but like both the item and the player go on an arc. Because I don't, I mean, frivolous fucking magical items is fun when you're doing a dungeon crawl campaign. Yeah. But when it's like anything that's like narrative based or sort of you're aiming for longevity, handing somebody 16 different magical items in a chest because they beat a really tough boss is like, okay. It's like, cool. That's fun, I guess. Versus Versus like like one really cool item that mm -hmm. is like tailor-made for that character because of the way that that character plays Mm -hmm. or because of what that character is lacking sorely like one of the characters was like a very squishy uh necromancer and they got armor Mm -hmm. like a magical armor thing because it knew that like that was something she got hit once and died like (laughs) yeah that's i think that's probably my biggest advice too for for anybody that's interested in coming up with um homebrew magic items even if it's just a player for themselves like spend i would say at least three to four sessions if you have the time for that just as a dm watching how they interact watching how they plan combat encounters watching what downfalls and pitfalls they have as a character naturally versus like ups what are they really good at what are they bad at Um, and then sort of coming up with ideas that you can support them mechanically and then kind of rolling those ideas into a magical item Mm-hmm. Um, and then starting small and getting big because like leveling up is one of the most fun parts of the game. Yeah. You level up a magical item too. And if like, that thing suddenly becomes a lot more fun, cause it's like now they have something to spend their downtime on. Mm-hmm. They have things to ask questions about. They have an item that they can go to in a pinch. Like it just adds another sort of layer to their character because they have this thing that they're actively trying to improve, not just themselves. Yeah. And I think it's also like, it's, it's a physical reminder of like moments in a campaign if you're doing it that way of like tailor making them mm-hmm. which is really fucking neat and if i mean it's been very clear throughout this podcast if you've listened to any other episodes i'm someone who loves things and i love reminders mm-hmm. and i love like touchstones yep. and so being able to like for a character to have a item that is directly reflective of like what they've been doing mm-hmm. of who they are of like even if it's something as simple as like oh yeah you get a locket from like your great grandmother mm-hmm. and you always have it. And then suddenly you find out that it's magical. Yeah. I think that's still like pretty impactful yeah. because it's something that is directly tied to you. Mm-hmm. And like, for example, in terms of watching and how difficult that process can be, if you want to do it right, I have given pretty much everybody in the campaign at this point, some form of magical item with the exception of Madison. And that is Hi. because they're, She's had a lot of moments. She's role-played quite a bit, often more than other people, because that's just who she is. 
but there still hasn't been anything like there wasn't there hasn't been any moments I guess so far in the campaign where I was like that's the thing that she needs yeah. that's what I'm gonna give her um, but like with Dakota's character um, Sebastian he has a run in with his father he's going through like this uh, he's kind of he's fitting the we get to watch him discover his superhero identity, become a superhero in real time trope. Yeah. Whereas everybody else is feeling a different one. His is like superhero origin story. Um, and so I thought it would be really cool to do like um, a father who's not a retired hero, but is one of the best heroes in the city, has an estranged relationship with Sebastian, and then basically sees that his son is being a hero or trying to be one, and then gives him a magical item that's there to sort of guide him to be more like him and rather and less like himself. Yeah. Um, and then that item ends up being used in a really big emotional moment for that character. And so there's already some negative connotation, which is exactly what I was hoping was going to happen. Because yeah. now it's like, here's this really powerful item that's going to get me really far as a hero, but also it's come from somebody who I don't appreciate. And so part of, I don't want to give too much away because he's going to listen to this. He listens to all of them. Part of my idea for that arc then is like, I'm so interested to see what path he will take with that item. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be, I'm going to learn how to use my powers in tandem with this item and make it my own? Is it, I'm fully going to embrace the power the item gives me and then really just lean into that sort of more hardcore, ruthless nature? Is he going to throw it away entirely? And then there are things too that I have written about the item that he will find out when he levels up, when he does key moments with the items. Some things are like phrase-based as well um, mm-hmm. that he's not going to say normally, so it's going to have to come down to like an emotional moment. Um and then for for uh, one of the we have two Elijahs. For one of the Elijahs, um, his magical item at this point isn't really an item that I've given him, but more something based entirely in his own like power. He has kind of something like a venom suit sort of deal. It's all shadow based, um, but all the benefits that I'm giving him in terms of a magical item are happening organically through his own power. Um, it's not like an item that I'm physically handing him. It's him being able to do fun, unique, creative things with his suit with his shadows with his powers um and then been kind of the same way playing vault his is also kind of evolving in that similar direction i'm sure he will end up getting an item he's kind of moving in that direction right now but um part of what i'm exploring with him in terms of magical items is how far can he push his power he's a character that doesn't have really an upper limit to how strong he can get and he's kind of figuring that out especially in the last session so um depending on which route he takes that then as a player will determine if I give him a magical item or if it's like um, a shadow situation where we just see how, like what the upper limits are. Because sometimes players don't need another item. They just need uh, to have more creative freedom and control over the powers they already have as a, as a character. Like yeah. you just don't always need an item. I mean, that's what the item that you were talking about that uh, I was homebrewed uh, that basically stored wild magic surges was like I, w- I had mage armor. I was doing fine in combat. I was a spell sniper and, like, a spell slinger, so there was no reason for me to have, like, a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, what do you, And I've got a fuck ton of spell slots because I was a sorcerer warlock multi-class. Mm-hmm. So what do you give? Well, I'm someone who likes to use my wild magic surges, and I, like, try to get a wild magic surge as often as possible. So giving me something that can either increase my chances of a wild magic surge mm-hmm. by double or store my wild magic surges when I don't want to so I can turn them into spell slots later was something that was very, very helpful. And it wasn't necessarily the item that was like, mm-hmm. the item was not doing, I, I'm like phrasing it wrong. The item it was, was an built item. built into the character yes. and the class and less about the item itself. Yes. Yeah. Which is like a very similar vein as to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, I mean, just based on that alone, right? Like you can already start to, to see how complex magical items as a concept can be. 
They don't always have to be material. They don't always have to have a concrete mechanism or mechanic they introduce. Sometimes they can just be a natural power that you then label as a magical item. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think when there's when there are cons to homebrew, one of them is that you have infinite creative freedom to take with it. Yeah. And if you want to give your players a super personable experience, you're going to do homebrew and you're going to match everything to them. And it's going to take a lot of thought and a lot of time to put it together. I remember there was when it was the session before we were getting our magical items in the last campaign and it was a day where i just remember robert was sitting on the couch being and said audibly to me that he was like i'm working on getting magical items today and watching i think i watched him go through like all the stages of grief uh as Mm -hmm. like hunched over on the couch scrolling through like instagram on his phone and like on his laptop at the same time trying to come up with items and like be like, okay, this item is cool, but I don't like these effects, yeah. and I've got to change it and reskin it. And it's not really what I want for that person or player. Like, yeah, yeah. It, inspiration. I mean, if anybody is listening, writes or is a creative person, you know that inspiration kind of strikes at the most random times. And I very much take that approach with magical items. Hence, why Madison doesn't have one yet, because I just haven't found anything that I think fits the character. And I'm not going to just give her a half-ass one for funsies. Like, yeah. Cool, you're level three. You're at the bottom of the food chain. You need an item. Here's like a coat that's bulletproof. Have fun. Cool. Uh, I already have a costume, so. It's like you just, you have to be kind of creative with it sometimes. And homebrew allows for that, but it also makes it a lot more difficult. Because you want to make, it's that thing of like, when you're, when you really are passionate about a project and you're like, it's never correct. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's always something that could be better. And that constant like, well, how can I improve it? Well, what am I going to add to it? I'm not going to turn this project in because I don't like the way that it looks and I need it to be perfect if I'm going to turn it in. And it's like almost that like procrastination thing. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's the way that like I interact with them. Yeah, no, I kind of I kind of agree. So uh, another, I guess, topic we can talk about in terms of homebrew and dig a little bit more into is stat blocks. So we've talked about uh, how to create combat encounters. Truly a lot of it is just like we mentioned before feel out your players what are they capable of what are they what kind of combat challenges do they want are they super hardcore i want to feel like death every session or is it i want to fucking knock some goons and be a hero yeah um or do you want something in the middle which is what i tend to strive for because it lets me have fun it lets them have fun it's still challenging whatever 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 um so you'll figure out how many of what combatant to put in there how to base stat blocks off of existing creatures but if you want to do the nitty-gritty and really get into a stat block um you're gonna have (laughs) so there's a lot uh, there, every creature has its own um, has its own ability scores. So strength, dex, con, intelligence, wisdom, charisma. Every one of them is going to have hit points, an armor class, a walk speed, a swim speed, a fly speed. They're going to have their own saves if they do have any plus to saves. They're going to have their own skills, their own senses, their own languages, and then they're going to have this stupid fucking ambiguous thing. I almost wish they would have just never put on creatures to begin with, which is called a challenge rating. Um, it is notoriously. I still don't understand challenge rating. It is notoriously difficult to understand what a challenge rating means in terms of players. So a challenge rating, if I remember correctly, um, it's like how many X level characters does it take, or um, how much effort is it going to take to kill this particular creature? I, I think Madison might have a better description. I'm I'm just straight googling it, and it's not helping. <laughs> The way that I've always taken it is basically... Okay, here it is. Here oh, it is. I found it. Here we go. From uh, the front pages of the Monster Manual. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> if you can't tell, I haven't read through that a lot. Ahem. 
A monster's challenge rating tells you how great a threat the monster is, according to the encounter building guidelines in Chapter 3 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Those guidelines... (laughs) <laughs> Those guidelines specify the numbers of adventurers of a certain level that should be able to defeat a monster of a particular challenge rating without suffering any deaths. Mm-hmm. An appropriately equipped and well-rested party of four adventurers should be able to defeat a monster that has a challenge rating equal to its level without suffering any deaths. For example, a party of four third-level characters should find a monster with a challenge rating of three to be a worthy challenge but not a deadly one. So There's another thing, but I'm ignoring understand how fucking absurd that is. So that means that one tenth level creature is technically the equivalent of four level ten characters, which I have never found to be the case in anything I have ever thrown at you That's all. That's crazy. Four level ten characters will two tap a fucking tenth level, like a, a CR ten creature in like two turns. Two seconds. Period. Versus uh, a fifth level, uh, a challenge rating of five, like a, a five creature um, in a party, like a group of four players that are all level three, still going to be challenging. But what you're going to find is that the amount of creati- the amount of creativity in action economy that comes from four individuals versus one creature that has at max three actions a turn. Yeah. The creature's going to fucking die. Yeah. The creature's going to die. Like it's only when you start doing like CR 11s, 12s, 13s, 14s, 15s that those lever those lower level groups of of players will not be able to handle. Um, and so there is that description from the monster manual, but you will find it very, very rarely lines up that I'll way. I'll say it also says with the caveat, this is a appropriately equipped and mm. well-rested party. Hey, this shit sucks. Do you have something you want to send in to make it better? Criticisms, topics you'd like to see discussed, or an advertisement you'd like to run? Maybe you even want to sponsor an episode. If so, shoot us a message at mc460 at evansville.edu or DM us on Instagram at Crescent Magazine. Or we'll never get better like these fucking guys. Most of the time, it's not going to be that. I also noticed <laughs> that they don't define what appropriately equipped means. Yeah, like yeah. what does that mean? Does that mean they've got magical Which, items? Again, you're going to have to figure out what the fuck that is if you're doing homebrew. Like you just got to feel it out. But anyways, to go to stat blocks. The well-rested part is really what's getting me here. Well-rested That's is crazy. funny as fuck. Challenge ratings mean nothing. Um, generally what your combat encounters are going to look like if you like to do the middle like I do. You're going to have a bunch of lower level CRs and you're going to have one slightly larger CR creature or multiple large CR creatures but only very few or just one really, really big thing with the Mm. environment being more of the challenge or a mechanic being more of the challenge and less so the creature. Yeah. Like I'm going to put a fifth level fucking, uh, uh, let's say a a CR 10 uh, spellcaster in the back of a room. I have four level, I don't know, sevens, eights, um, that are like have to charge through the area. He's gonna run out of fucking options really quickly because Ooh, if yeah. they all, if all four of them go in a different direction and they all four take evasive actions or choose to shoot him, he's dead. Period. Yeah. Like there's nothing I can do. So that's when I would give them a room that's gonna be difficult for that to do in. I'm gonna give them a significantly more narrow spaces. I'm gonna lay traps. I'm gonna have that wizard set up some sort of uh, backup plans or. Um, so, uh, like I guess, sort of. Uh, oh my God, what am I? What am I trying to think of? Like, oh, contingency plans for like if certain things happen. So if if that wizard starts getting hit a fuck ton with ranged attacks, maybe I'm gonna give them a spell that wards off ranged attacks. If I know that the party consists of two barbarians, a ranger, and I don't know a fucking mage, maybe I'm gonna put a lot more physical barriers in the way, like difficult terrain, to keep those barbarians from 
just rushing me at the very end. Um, so it's not always going to be as simple as put one large creature in an empty field and let your players go nuts. Yeah. Because it's going to be really boring for them and it's going to be boring for you. Yeah. So just try to roll in mechanics and terrain and like more creative solutions uh, and obstacles rather than just dropping a bunch of little guys and a big guy or two big guys or one big guy. Like, yeah. you'll feel it out. And it's also a thing of you can have fun with that too and be like, okay, make your players play smarter. Mm-hmm. Like, it can be a thing where, you know, if you take out this like bigger creature, mm-hmm. then all of the little ones are going to stop existing because maybe they're constructs that mm-hmm. are like being kept like fucking right. working 100%. by a concentration spell or something like that. Yep. Uh, and then like so on and so forth. So um, uh, the example stat block I have pulled up, it's um, an abolith, which is, well, abolith are the things that, yeah, those are the things that like to fuck people mentally. So abolith basically sit in holes in the ground, sort of in the underwater kind of areas, and then basically make creatures their slaves, and then they go out and do their business above. Um, they're kind of notorious in the D&D community as being like evil tele- like telekinetic octopuses. Yeah. Um, they're very interesting. <laughs> but anyways, um, it has a, a CR of 10, challenge rating of 10. It speaks deep speech te- telepathy of 220 feet. It has dark vision. It has passive perception. It, is, it has a skill in history of plus 12. That's f- that means if it makes a history check... For some reason, the Avalith will get a plus 12 to that. It also has a plus 10 to perception. Please tell me. I, well, I'm going to pause you for a second. Please explain to me a scenario in which an Avalith is making a history check. To remember where somebody went to remember something that has happened okay. in the village that it's been keeping hostage. Okay, that makes more sense. I yeah. was fully in that, like role play I brain, would... and I was like, why is this Abolith going to see something and be like, hmm? No, the way that I would play that is an Abolith has taken over a village, and the players very quickly pick up that all the people aren't quite right, and maybe the Abolith is then going to roll a history check to remember something specific about, um, like, maybe the players roll an insight check into a character. And instead of me rolling deception on behalf of that Abolith controlled creature, I'm going to roll history to see if okay. the Abolith remembers the appropriate information. Okay. That's where I would kind of roll it in. And the reason that is is that Abolith have an intelligence score of 18. They have a strength score of 21. <laughs> what the fuck? Their dex is 9 because, again, they're octopus. Um, yeah. Their constitution is 15, wisdom is 15, charisma is 18. So they have some pretty fucking high stats with the, with the exception of dexterity. Yeah. Um, they have traits called uh, amphibious. They can breathe air and water. They have this thing called mucus cloud where basically they can um, squirt ink and mucus in an area underwater with them that basically makes everybody make a constitution saving throw. Disgusting. If Next. they fail, they take damage. Um, yeah, shit gets fucking crazy. And that one is fun. It says the diseased creature can breathe underwater only. <laughs> so all of your air-breathing PCs what? hop into the water to go fight the Abolith, or they all get yanked. This thing releases mucus cloud. You all fail your con saves. Now all of you can only breathe underwater. That's fucking evil. It's evil. That's crazy. Uh, probing telepathy. It would also be fucking terrifying for you to not realize that as a PC and go up to like get air and you just fucking... Mm-hmm. So this is where the history checks come in. So probing telepathy is another trait it has. If a creature communicates telepathically with the abolith, the abolith learns the creature's greatest desires if the abolith can see the creature. Okay. So that's going to be like you walk into its lair and it's immediately going to try like try and strike up conversation with you. And then if you have conversation with it, it's now going to know a lot of information about you. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, so forth. It has, it has attacks. So it has multi-attacks, individual attacks. It has like basically what are akin to legendary actions. Oh, it does have legendary actions. <laughs> 
Um, it has three of those. Again, stat blocks. You want to talk get... about legendary actions and explain those? Yeah, so stat blocks can get wild and crazy. Legendary actions, the way that they work, generally speaking, um, there are two different ways that I've seen them done. One is that you have an infinite amount of them, and you can only do them at the end of another character's or player's or NPC's turn. The other way I've seen them done is that you only have three of them for the whole day, and you still have to follow that rule of you can only do them after another, I don't know, NPC slash PC's turn. What legendary actions are designed for is to create really difficult or unique creatures or NPCs. Um, for instance, the three legendary actions that the Avalith has. Uh, detect. The Avalith makes a wisdom slash perception check. Uh, tail swipe. The Avalith makes one tail attack. Uh, and then psychic drain, which costs two actions. One creature charmed by the Avalith takes 10 psychic damage, or 3d6. And then the Avalith gains hit points equal to the damage the creature takes. Um, it yeah. also says here that it has, uh, on the little thing that I'm looking at on improved initiative or on, yeah, improved initiative slash combat tracker. I can mark how many legendary actions I've taken. I can mark how many creatures I have enslaved. Um, but there are two ways to do that. So let's say Madison spends her turn running 30 feet towards the Abolith. The Abolith is, uh, say 10 feet. So just out of range. The Abolith can then, or the DM then can make the, the choice to do a legendary action which I could say, okay, he has 15 feet of range on his tail attack. Madison is not within range. I'm going to spend a legendary action at the end of Madison's turn and roll one tail attack. Mm-hmm. Um, alternatively, let's say all of your players are scattering like roaches um, and trying to hit this thing from six different like six different sort of uh, ways or in its lair. I can then say, okay, at the end of this player's turn, I'm going to use a legendary action to roll a perception check to see if I can figure out where all of my players are at. Um, and that's generally how legendary actions work. They can only happen at the end of another character's turn or PC's turn or NPC's turn. Not its own. It's explicitly not its own. It has to be after another one. Um, and there are two different ways to do it. They refill at the end of every turn or at the end of um, each round, or you only have three of them, period. Those are legendary actions. I do not recommend trying to homeroom legendary actions. I recommend looking up examples of them and then using them yeah. because those can get really, really broken really, really quick. I'll say, as a player, I hate... Legendary actions legendary are the one actions. thing that will piss players off more than anything when, when they're in a combat encounter. Because you finally feel like you've got even footing with something, and then it goes, legendary action, mm-hmm. no. There's and, also... And it's just, people are throwing <laughs> dice, people are yelling, the DM is getting get, yep. getting called literally every single name that is, like, legal. There are also something called, uh, things called legendary resistances, so it works similar to legendary actions. Let's say... Um, let's say somebody, Madison, again, let's say she's a spellcaster, she casts Fireball on the Abolith and the Abolith, which does not have this, but let's say, for instance, it does. It has three legendary resistances. Madison hits me for, like, 60 damage with a Fireball. I can say, I'm going to burn a legendary resistance and take half damage. That's the one that pisses me off That's the, the one most. that pisses people off the most, is not the legendary actions, it's the legendary resistances, because that's what can fuck a player out of getting that killing blow. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it works the same way. You can only use it at the, in, in a reaction. So let's say, um, three characters hit the Ableth one turn after another, after another. If I burn a legendary resistance on player two's turn, I cannot then burn another one on players three, or on mm-hmm. player three. Some DMs will not do it that way. That's the way I like to do it. Cause that's just kind of like fucky. If you yeah. just say, I can do it whenever I damn well, please. Or I'm going to burn all three on just your turn. Fuck you. Fireball? Nope. Jesus. Fireball again? Nope. Twin Spell Eldritch Blast? Also no. Is it you're saying that? I feel like Half that's something that has definitely happened at our table. 
Yeah, similar things have happened at the table because I've made characters in, in, in PCs that were designed to kind of be that sort of yeah. character. All of this walking you through a stat block just to give you an idea on what on how difficult it can be or could be to homebrew something. Yeah. I highly, 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 highly cannot recommend that enough. Highly recommend uh, when you're trying to homebrew a stat block, find a creature, find an NPC, find a pre-generated stat block that you like that is close enough, and then retexture it, maybe change some of the wording in the stat block, but unless you have a lot of experience under your belt, do not try to make that shit on your own. Yeah. You will get really, but you will get bogged down so quick. It is ridiculous. And there's literally nothing wrong with reskinning. It is the easiest way for you to be able to do things. And guess what? No one's going to fucking know. Mm -hmm. No one's going to know whether you spent hours no homebrewing this thing or if you just took a fucking abolith mm -hmm. and slapped a new name on it. And unless your like player is a fucking like rules lawyer and mm -hmm. is like really, really anal about it. I despise rule lawyers. I hate them. <laughs> I feel like every DM does. They have, I mean, they have their place, but also, no mind your, your business. Shut the fuck up. Here's the thing that gets me about rule lawyers: when you, as a player, are correcting another player, that shit pisses me <laughs> off. And we're gonna do an episode about like pet peeves at the table. And honestly, we were talking about like mind we are gonna add to that business. list. I'm gonna write that down right now, and I'm gonna get into it more then. I think but I might like, have put it on there already. Did you? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did under pet peeves because that shit pisses me off. It. Drives me nuts, Both especially when the DM is DM. trying to do. I'm I'm not gonna get too into it. Yep. Anyways, um, homebrew pros and cons. Con fucking stat blocks. Have fun with that shit, man. Anything else for pros and cons of homebrew? Um, I mean, we talked kind of about like the general boundaries of like having a a a like kind of a guide to take from, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's also, there's definitely things that you don't have to do a campaign that is either all source book or yeah. all homebrew. I highly you, recommend both. Like blend them. You can start yeah. straight up following everything out of a one shot, including the dialogue prompts. And then you can end with a completely homebrewed thing. Mm -hmm. I think that that's like totally okay. And it gives you a starting point. It gives you guidelines. Yeah. It gives you a general idea or like an outline basically of what you want your story to be. But it also gives you like enough freedom where you can like just make shit up because that's yeah. part of the fucking fun of it all. I think also being a DM, trying to be aware of how familiar you are with the setting will determine how like essentially the level of need you have for a source book. Yeah. So for instance, my very first campaign that I ever did, I placed it in a fantasy universe. I know a lot about fantasy universes. I've watched plenty of TV shows, animated TV shows, cartoons. I've played D&D &D for a year and a half, two years previous to DMing my first campaign. Um, like, I've just consumed a lot of fantasy-based content. I definitely wish that I had not have homebrewed everything in my first campaign because it was really difficult, but it was a lot easier because I knew my content um, pretty goddamn well. Like, it is a lot easier for me as someone who has indulged in a lot of fantasy content to improv and improv roleplay characters, names, locations, items, history, background, because it's all generally kind of the fucking same. Um, versus if I tried to, say someone put me in a fucking Harry Potter campaign and they were like, have fun homebrewing, no source book, I'd be absolutely fucked because I haven't read Harry Potter a day in my life. Yeah. So that is where I would say, no, I'd actually like to use a source book at least for a little bit until I get my footing underneath me. It's like, they're like training wheels. Mm-hmm. If you know you're going to need them, 
use them. Even if you don't think you're going to need them, have one ready so that when you run out of things to talk about or use... <laughs> There's a prompt. Mm-hmm, you got something you can just throw in there really quick. And sometimes it's one of those things and like... only got to make it till the end of a session. And it's always one of those things where like I've seen clips of it from different like actual plays and like been a thing that has existed at the table. Sometimes, and this is also like as someone who has done a lot of improv, sometimes your brain just goes blank. Oh, sometimes Jesus, yeah. someone is talking to you and you're having a full conversation with them, like in you're in it and you're like doing the thing. And then someone goes, oh, what's his name? And you just break, like your brain just stops. You break down, you freeze, you can't think of anything. Mm-hmm. You are paralyzed. You are glued to the spot. Having a book open where you can be like, it's Gerald mm-hmm. is going to be so helpful and it's going to help you get back on your feet yep. because your players are always going to pull you out of it because they're going to do something bad shit and you're just going to go, you don't have I need a minute. To. And you're just going to be like, I, uh, what? Yeah, general rule What of the thumb, fuck are you talking about? When it comes to preparing for sessions, unless you're somebody that just likes to be super prepared, you only need to know enough to get you through the end of the next session. Yeah. You only need to know enough about your world so that if somebody goes, so have these two heroes fought before? You have enough to say, yes, they have. No, they haven't. Yeah. If it's like, would I know one of their battles? Knowing, having enough information to know about what some larger, like, villains would be in that setting is going to be just enough for you to go, yes, this hero has fought this villain. It was a big thing. This person walked away unscathed. Or that was, like, the birth of this character's popularity. End of story. If they want to pursue that, you go on your downtime. You can go to the comic book store and buy a fucking comic. Yeah. Because I don't have any more information to give you. Yeah. But I don't need to know, like, who hit who first, the motivations for the fight starting, where it happened, when it happened, why it happened. I just need to know the gist. Yeah. It happened. Here's who it happened between. And it's one of those things where, like, it's so tricky because we've talked, uh, like, before about the, like, the beauty is sometimes in the specificity, and that is what sometimes Mm -hmm. makes a lot of these things, like, so impactful and so grounded and so real is the specificity. But also at the same time, you don't need to be that specific. Like, yeah, it's really great for you as, like, a player or a DM or, like, anyone to know, like, the nitty-gritty details of something. Mm Mm-hmm. But you're not going to be able to do that for everything. Yeah. Sometimes you're just going to have to be like, oh, yeah, I think I met that guy before. His name was mm-hmm. uh, fucking, I, I don't remember his name, but I remember kind of what he looked like. Yeah. Pro tip is a DM, let your players uh, figure out the specificity for you, truly. Like, what saves me time and time again is when they ask a question to, or when they ask a question and I don't have an answer for it, I make them roll for it. That gives me time and the time it takes them to roll to figure out what my answer is going to be. Yeah. Or roll again. Every time I'm having them roll, I'm trying to think of something else to give them because it's like either I have that information on hand or I don't. So force your players to be the ones that drive that specificity. Yeah. You know? And in kind of similar vein, and this is not something that we had written down as a note, but now it's something I'm just going to like, I guess, ask or bring up Mm. since we're like having a conversation about um that's what the podcast is about yeah um and i immediately lost it no it's still in my head i'm just trying to figure out how to phrase it you'll get there um i believe in you with the idea of like players driving things and, mm-hmm. and this is also coming from i i was re-watching um misfits and magic which is a season on dimension 20 um again the other night just because it's like one of my comfort shows and i was playing it in the background and one of the things that i love watching with them is how they will build the story like the uh, and this is something abria i 
uh, guard does really, really well, which is passing the baton to the players for a moment Mm -hmm. for them to describe something that is happening in the world or something that they are doing. Um, Of like, there was a moment where, for Misfits of Magic, basically it's like a Harry Potter knockoff. It's very good. And there's a moment where the owl is coming and like delivering the letters and um, Abria passes it off to Erica Ishii and is like, describe what this character is doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were describing how their character, she was like in her bedroom and she was like on her uh, laptop doing something. And she was like, and then suddenly the the owl slams into the window. And like Erica was the one that made that choice. Mm-hmm. And it, it was fucking funny. And like, yeah. it was just a thing that like Abria picked up and started rolling with. And it happened a couple more times. And I think that's just a really interesting thing. I think mm-hmm. there's definitely like a level of like. Yeah, I think letting your players build the world as much as you do do is is super important it takes a lot of work off you as a dm it also lets them kind of define aspects that they might like really want to themselves um i mean yeah that that there's so much that can be said on that in particular on like passing the baton from like dm to player yeah uh and sometimes that's difficult to find moments um to sort of insert that like i know it's difficult for me oftentimes to figure out when to pass it back and forth because like there's a balance to be struck between me telling you all a narrative and then you playing the narrative. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Um, and so it's just... Eh, it's definitely go. one of those things that you've got to balance. It takes practice, 100%. And it's also a thing as a player of, like, knowing where the boundaries are because there's so many, like, funny moments. And once again, calling back to Dimension 20, mm-hmm. where, a car- where a PC will just make a throwaway comment on something and be like, oh, yeah, I know him. Yeah. Uh, there was a moment where um, Allie Beardsley as uh, Kristen Applebee's goes, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Like, I... I went to their like I went to that church camp and they were mm-hmm. like the the cult? You mean this this dangerous cult? And Allie Beardsley was like, Oh yeah, like I know the handshake and everything. And like mm-hmm. that became canon of like That's as funny. a player, sometimes there's gonna be an interaction and you can like there yeah. are moments where you can interject and be like, Oh yeah, I know that dude. Mm-hmm. He sold me a faulty watch or like something yeah. like that, but also knowing where the line is of like Hundred percent. Don't get too crazy with it. Sometimes. Yeah, like it's it's one thing to draw connections that are fun and kind of in the moment, and it's another thing to be like, actually, this really big, significant, world-changing, universe-altering event happened, and I was like right there for the whole thing. Yeah, it's like that's a bit much. But yeah, like, I don't know about that one. Yeah, you might have like seen some shit, but I don't know about all that. <laughs> you might have hit your head a couple times. It's like you're level three. Calm yeah. down. You were you were dropping your head. It's all right. Yeah. Just, you take a moment. Do a long rest because I don't think you're remembering all the facts correctly, bro. <laughs> Back the fuck up. Jesus. Um, yeah, no, I can't agree with that more. I think one of the other things I wanted to talk about in terms of homebrew is character builds. Um, we talked about encounters. We talked about concepts, mechanics, magical items. Character builds and everything that's in, sort of entailed in that. Again, go listen to previous episodes. You'll get a better idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, races, backgrounds, features, classes, feed like cl- fat cl- class features, subclasses. Yeah. Um, again, sky's the limit. You can change any of that if you damn well please. And I think usually my approach to homebrewing um, character builds or things for characters in particular when it comes to their creation is getting narrowing down a really specific concept that that player has for that character before we even begin picking the options. Yeah. So that's what I did for for this last campaign um, for uh, Capes and Crooks was I had them all come up with a concept, and some of them already had an idea because, I mean, I sent them all the information or some of the information they needed, and I told them, here are some things about the world, here are some things that you'll be doing, here are some things that blah, 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 blah. Come up with a character concept. Um, And so... From there, it's just sitting down and having a conversation with that player and figuring out, okay, this is the class that would best fit that character, uh, but maybe that class needs to be reworked. Maybe that feature needs to be changed a little bit. Maybe, 
okay, you're a shadow character, but you picked a class that doesn't give you access to any shadowy um, spells. Well, let's go ahead and homebrew that all of your spells still take on the appearance of shadows, or they all have an extra five feet of reach because whatever, whatever. Um, that's when you, like, in terms of character builds being creative and being homebrewy, it's a little easier because it's really easy to just pull on pre-existing, pre-existing stuff and then make modification to it, make yeah. modifications to it as you go. What's difficult and what I haven't had to do yet and I, I don't want to do is coming up with classes entirely on my own. Yeah. That's going to be like a week, month-long, year-long project trying to come up with classes, advancement tables. Yeah, that's um, so much. Class features, subclasses. I've never done it. I don't recommend you do it. Find something you like and then tweak it from there, man. Um, which I think at this point is just a lesson for this whole episode. Find something you like that already exists in the world and then turn and it into what you it. want it to be. Tweak I'll it. say, if you want to look in, and there's several it. things that are like official canon to D&D now, uh, and like in the source books and shit, that have come from Humber. Matt Mercer has made several. Um, yeah. I was the, just the looking up to double check some Monster things. Hunter classes. Uh, Blood Hunter. Yeah, Blood Hunter. Uh, that was a homebrew thing that like officially basically got picked up by... Mm-hmm. Um, Wizards. By wizards. Uh, same thing with the gunslingers. That was, um, I'm pretty sure, wasn't it created for, and I, I could be wrong on this. So if I'm wrong, no, I'm not. Um, wasn't that made for? Couldn't tell you. Uh, I don't Percy know the, I don't know the history of classes, truly. Um, critical, well, critical Role as just a group, as an organization, has yeah. like fully paved the way for <laughs> They've like a lot of content. Yeah, they, Source books, character models, classes, races, you name it, they've done it. Yeah. One of Fucking my favorites insane, dude. Uh, from Matt Mercer is the Bard College of Maestro, which yeah. is like a conductor. Yeah. Um, it's funny as fuck. It's, it's really cool. It's like really um, that. But yeah, unless Basically what we're, what we're telling you is that unless you're a Matt Mercer who has an <laughs> army of writers and a lot of money to hire them, don't do it yourself. Or if you're just Matt Mercer himself. Or if that's just your job is D&D, also don't do it unless you're him. Yeah. Or do it and have fun figuring that out, I guess. I mean, I encourage creativity, but also, like, know your limits in mm. terms of, like, don't... It, and that's the, something we've talked about before of, like, you are not the actual plays that you're watching and listening to. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It is just mm-hmm. sometimes you've got to manage expectations because no one's going to go into something and, and automatically be perfect at it. A lot of the actual plays that are popular enough to be watched are popular enough to pop up on your feed or your Spotify... The people that are in those actual plays have either done it for years or first time doing it with experts or people that live normal lives outside of that and have backgrounds in the things that they're doing, like improv, like being creative, like D&D in general. Yeah. Like Brennan Lee Mulligan has played his whole life. Matt Mercer has played his whole life. Yeah. Lou Wilson is accomplished and has also played for a good portion of his life. Yeah, and it's also one of those things of, like, for me looking and being, like, because I'm someone who, like, does have aspirations of, like, I mean, I'm we're doing a D&D podcast. You can kind of tell what our aspirations are. Hopefully it goes somewhere. Um, of being, like, well, why am I not on that level? Why am I not? I'm a 21-year-old college student. Mm-hmm. I'm from Indiana. While I have a background in theater, I'm that's not enough Indiana. to, like, well you know that's, i mean that's just the, in the real <laughs> i'm fucked i'm from indiana <laughs> truly the rest of it is irrelevant uh but it's just one of those things that's like you know you're not gonna pick up a hobby or pick up a job or pick up a task and automatically be great at it you can have a talent mm-hmm. for it and you can have a skill for it but you're not gonna be shooting 100 all the time practice man sometimes you're gonna miss sometimes you're gonna fuck up 100 percent practice yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, again, kind of tie it back into what 
what we were talking about originally, character builds, races, etc. Find stuff that you like that pre-exists and then tweak it to fit the, the character, the player, the whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's just the most fun way to do it, in my opinion, because you don't have to do a whole bunch of extra shit. You can just kind of tweak what you like and then rebrand it. A lot of yeah. it for me is just, yes, we can make that spell look like this. Yeah. Yes, it can do a little bit of extra whatever. Yes, yeah. you can get an extra five feet of reach. Like... A lot of the time, it's just like that's the extent. asking that question. Truly, can I get just a little more? Can we tweak it, tweak it just like a little bit? I mean, we did that uh, last session. There's a character. There's the shadow character, and then my character is Nightlight, and it's not in any of the thing. This is just completely like flavor. Is I was like, she glows a little. Yep. I think uh, that's fun and funny. Shadow character also fully ran vertically up a fucking skyscraper. Yeah. Um, does not have climbing speed, by the by. <laughs> He was just like, now, could I argue that if I use all of my actions in my turn to run vertically up this thing, I can use my shadows to, like, sort of Spider-Man my way up? And I was like, you know what? If you're going to spend your whole fucking turn doing it, I'm not yeah. going to take that away from you. The crossover between homebrew and rule of cool is, like, it's it's, it's damn near a circle. Yeah, no, it 100% is. Last session, I got advantage on something because we established in the game that the shadow character has a weakness to bright lights or to light. And I was like, hey, my character glows. Can I get advantage? Can I, like, can I blind him? Because mm. he's in a coma right now and he just attacked me. Yeah. Um, Not a built-in mechanic in the universe. Yeah. Truly, there's nothing in the fucking source book that he would that, that would even indicate that shadow-based characters, because they don't exist in the source book, would have a weakness to light. Yeah. But here we are. Yeah. And it it Ball of light worked. did it, baby. And it was truly just, I. It, it's not even like a cool glowing. It's like a, a it's flashlight. Just, it's just like a glowing. Yeah. yeah. It's just like turning on like a little flashlight on your on your iPhone yeah. or something and being like, ah, look, you're blinded, bitch. Yeah. But it's Check. like her fingertips. Check. There was a moment she was helping in a mechanic shop and they were like, oh, we need someone to hold the flashlight. It was just her standing there with her fucking hand out. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the examples that I thought of earlier, we'll probably tie this off kind of soon just because we're running out of shit to talk about. Uh, but one of the, one of the best examples I could think of of rebranding or reworking something is um, Ben's character Volt is all electricity based, um, but kind of in in a more different way. Instead of just like having lightning powers, he wanted the concept of the character originally was to be like super fast, like like the Flash, like Barry Allen, like Wally West. Um, is that his name? Wally, Wally West? West is a yeah yeah, yeah. I, yeah I don't for some reason that name sounded fucking weird Wally West Barry Allen it's a weird fucking name um, but we kind of mold around the character and without giving away too much as Madison is sitting directly across from me and Dakota will listen to this no you can go uh, ahead I'll cover landed, my ears kind of landed on like um and this was revealed a little bit a couple sessions ago that he's sort of like an avatar for uh, electricity for um like a sort of again i can't really get into it but powers bestowed he picked sort of a background that meant that he inherited an ability and he is now the avatar for lightning slash electricity sort of in the new modern age um but the the class in particular that fit him best was um jumper yeah as opposed to speedster because a lot of the perks and a lot of the things jumper by the way is like a teleporter yeah teleporter sorry you you get advantage on teleporting and so on and so forth like when you teleport your immediate hit after and before that you have advantage and blah 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 blah. you're also the only person in the game who can teleport you're also the only person in the game who can teleport um and speedster it's fun you get a lot of fun cool perks i mean truly what capes and crooks was able to do with the speedster class is really fucking awesome and i can't wait to introduce a character that has those abilities um which so far i haven't 
but when I do, it'll be cool. Anyways, Speedster was the concept for the character. That was the class that we were thinking of when we were imagining the character, but Jumper had more perks and more abilities that he liked as a person. Um, so the way that we did it was we still wanted it to look like he had the speed of a Speedster, but it had the abilities of a Jumper. Um, so when he teleports, it's not just like instant, I mean it is because the game mechanic is instantaneous, but rather than it looking like him just appearing, like disappearing in one spot and appearing in another spot, because Capes and Crook says that whenever someone teleports with a jumper ability, like a little puff of smoke happens or a portal opens. Mm -hmm. For him, it's jumping at the speed of electricity slash lightning between electrical outlets, hopping between the lights, uh, hopping between any source of energy or electricity within the room, and that's how he gets around so quickly, is by essentially turning himself into raw energy and then bouncing from outlet to outlet to light to fixture to fucking stove to whatever he can essentially jump between, and then it looks, it's as fast as looking as though it's instantaneous. Um, so he still has like this uh, sort of image in the world he's in of being ridiculously quick, um, but has the abilities of Jumper because it fit the character more in terms of creation. It's not necessarily homebrew, but in terms of talking about rebranding something to fit the appearance of something that you would like it to be without having to pick a whole fucking different class, yeah. literally, we did that. Like, and I'll say, and I think that's something that a lot of us did in this particular campaign. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a lot of you, a lot of them picked classes that uh, didn't necessarily traditionally fit what their abilities were, but we we did, and then just sort of homebrewed it, like homebrewed the classes and the the spells appearances to look like what they wanted their players to look like. Yeah. I mean, even looking at the class my character is playing is Mystic, which is basically the equivalent to Wizard. Like, they get mm -hmm. their um, their powers from a book. Um, I didn't want to do that, so I was like, okay, I like the idea of, like, comic books being that book. How do I get powers from a comic book? Well, they don't have, like, spells written in them in the traditional way. So it became, okay, well, she's someone who can copy the powers of people that she reads about and people that she's very familiar with. Mm -hmm. which when you start thinking about that and we've talked a little bit about her arc is probably going to be her coming to realize, oh, this is a power of creation as opposed to just a power of copying and like learning and reading. Mm -hmm. Once it gets like further down the line and it's just straight up power of creation, you're no longer relying on a book, which does that, is that still really a wizard? It doesn't fucking matter because this is homebrew and this is our own thing that we're doing and it doesn't have to necessarily be tied to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's turned into what you want it to be. Turn into yeah. what the players want it to be, what fits best for the universe. Have a good rest of whatever the fuck day, time it is, whenever you listen to this. We'll see you again on another episode of Table Talk. Goodbye. Bye.